Now, right now, we're going to get into God's Word, and we're going to open up at Galatians, the book of Galatians, a letter written to the church in Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey. And we're going to pick up from sentence 10 and read through to the end of that chapter. If you have a Bible with you, please open it up and get into that. Otherwise, it will come up on the screen for you if you're comfortable just reading along. But Galatians 1.10 For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I seeking to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached to me and not, is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart from before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. And after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the word of God. Hey everyone, uh, great to be with you guys again this morning. Um, my name is Jacob, if you haven't met before, and it is just so, so great to be here together for another Sunday. And I just want to extend my welcome if you are here for the first time or maybe the first couple of times. We love having you with us, um, and we just really hope that you, um, you feel loved and welcomed and helped along um, with, I guess, whatever it is that you're kind of looking for here. If, you look, if you've got questions about life, questions about God, um, looking for community, we just hope that you feel like this is a place for you. I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to um, jump into that uh, little bit of text that Jez just read for us. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just want to just ask right now, as we have um, this bit of time where we can um, read over those words in front of us or on the screen or reflect on them as we can think about them together, just that this would be a time that you are speaking to us. You just give us eyes to see uh, in your word and in you um, just the reality of life, what it is that, that you have done for us and who we are. And we just pray that you'd be just giving us um, just, the, I guess, the peace of mind and the, and, the, and the attention to do this now and that you'd just be speaking to us all through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just going to get a picture of a, a bloke up on the screen now. Um, can you just put your hands up if you know who this person is? This is going to be a, probably about like a quarter to a third of the room. Hopefully you don't know who it is because you're dating him at the moment, but hopefully you know who it is because you've seen the documentary The Tinder Swindler on Netflix that came out this year. Um, this is uh, Simon Laviv, and he's you know not a, not a bad looking guy. He's got the got the Gucci happening and everything else. Um, what Simon would do uh, is that, and why uh, there's a documentary about him, is that Simon would meet meet women on Tinder, 
he would take them out to a really nice, fancy restaurant for dinner, spend more money on them than they've ever experienced, buy them clothes, jewellery, uh, watches, tell them the stories about his family and his wealth uh, and how it is that he's related to uh, an Israeli, Israeli businessman, uh, Lev Lviv, who was also known as the King of Diamonds. He would talk about his involvement in the diamond trade um, and just gush love on these women as well. Um, normally, though, after about a month or two of dating them, he would tell, so tell them that something had kind of gone wrong with a deal or something was held up or maybe um, just, you know, his money was kind of caught between things. And we just asked for it's a small loan of ten dollars to $20,000. Um, and because they knew he was wealthy, he had all the clothes, had everything to kind of back it up, photos and private jets and the like, they, they would give it to him. And he would take that money find another woman on Tinder, use that money to buy her a nice dinner and a nice night out on the town and, and jewellery and the rest of it and keep the cycle going. So he's a horrible guy. Um, his name's not even Simon Lviv. He just made it so he could claim to be related to the diamond guy. In reality, he's a nobody. He didn't even have a job, no kind of, no real connections, no, no nothing. Everything about him was just there to deceive. Um, and as you kind of watch this, if you've seen the documentary, you feel a few things. You obviously feel like a lot of disgust, uh, just to, like how can anyone be that manipulative and, 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 and cruel. You feel definitely pity for the, for the women who are conned and, um, and, and, uh, and that as well. But the other thing that I think a lot of us feel as we watch it, and as even as you, there's a lot of these kind of con man stories out there at the moment, if you've listened to the podcast, Who the Hell is Hamish as well, you feel a sense of, that could never happen to me. They're, they're kind of silly, they're kind of obviously maybe a bit greedy, I don't know what it is, but they, I could never be conned, I could never be fooled like that. Because we don't want to be swindled, we don't want to be sold a lie. I think most of us kind of have our guards up a, a lot of the time um, for potential cons. So even uh, James was on the guitar this morning, was saying that he won a competition over the weekend, and his first response was, no, nah, this is a scam. We don't, like, we just, even when we've actually won something, we, we're sceptical. We don't want to be sold a lie. And I think for many people, that's one of the, I guess, the main guards we've got as we, as we, if you're in the process even at the moment of exploring Christianity, that you don't want to be tricked. You don't want to be conned. You don't want to be defrauded. You don't want to be sucked into this thing, convinced that it's true, and then a little bit down the track realize it was all a lie. And I think that's really fair. I think it's really um, a fair thing not to want to disbelieve a lie, to actually find something in life that's authentic, but the reality is, answering the big questions of life, the things that, you know, that help you decide what is you're going to believe, uh, how you view yourself, how you view God, or if there even is a God, what life's about, how do you decide good and bad, it's not always that straightforward. There's a, a lot of competing claims out there in the world about what really is life all about, um, of what God is like, or, or what, who even God is. And so there's a big question is, well, how do you know which is the real deal? How do you know what's, what's a con, what's a fraud, how do you, or how do you know what is real? For followers of Jesus, there's a central, I guess, truth claim that is in the absolute center of kind of who we are and what we believe, and that's the message of the gospel. And that central truth claim that Christians hold to is that there is a God, a God who made us, a God who loves us, and despite our failure and rebellion and sin, he died for us as an unearned gift that he rose again from the dead and now lives in us and is working to transform us and our world to how it was meant to be. And that's the central claim that we're going to come to week and week out through this um, letter to the Galatians. 
And we're right now, we just started it last week, um, if, you, if you weren't here, but we're still in the very much the introductory kind of part of the book. And Paul is laying out, he's, he's going to be talking a lot about this big truth claim of the gospel, but he wants to put right up front, why should you even listen to him? How, how can you believe him? How can you know what he's saying is true? That's what this passage is concerned with. How do you know that the gospel message is true? And there's a bunch of ways you, know, you could kind of come at this question. People ask, you know, in, in thinking about the truthfulness of Christianity, you can look at it like philosophically, asking the kind of big metaphysical questions of life, or you could look at it um, historically, seeing if the, the Bible literature and text is historically reliable. You could go through a logical process of just kind of weighing up um, and, and comparing Christianity with our worldviews out there. And they're all good and valid ways to go about it. But just to be upfront, that's not what we're going to be doing today. What we're going to be doing today is working through what Paul says, um, what he's putting forward as the reason that he should be listened to, um, and how he thinks that the authenticity of the gospel can be demonstrated. And the way that he does this is to share his own experience with it. So to, to get a bit of a just context, um, which we talked a little about last week, so it'll be even shorter than we did then, Paul's the author of this letter. He's writing to uh, a collection of churches in Galatia, um, which is modern-day Turkey, and he's writing because of a dispute that had arisen in which some Jewish Christians from Jerusalem had come to the people in Galatia who had become followers of Jesus but weren't ethnically Jewish and was saying to them that in order to be accepted by God, yes, you need to start following Jesus, but on top of that, you also need to uh, abide by the Jewish laws about what you eat, what you wear, kind of how you spend your time, this kind of thing as well. And this is in opposition to what Paul had taught these people, which was that all you need to have God accept you is to understand his grace, that he has given a gift, that he loves you because of what he has done, not because of what we've done. And so this letter is spelling out um, to help the Galatians kind of pick apart these two competing claims and to help them see that the gospel of grace is the only true and good gospel. And so what he does here is he gives three reasons that people should listen to his message um, over and above the other message that they're hearing. And that's that, firstly, he's not there just to be a crowd pleaser. Secondly, that the gospel itself is not man-made. And that, thirdly, the gospel changes lives. And that's what we're going to be working our way through today. So firstly, um, Paul wants to lay out that he is not a crowd pleaser. That he's not telling them this message of the gospel just to make them think well of him or to impress them in some way. It's the case, isn't it, that often the desire to get people on board with you as a person can sometimes mean sacrificing a bit of the truth. We're in an election campaign at the moment, um, which some of you might love, but I think a lot of us uh, don't love so much. It's not the, the funnest time of the year. And I don't want to get political because, you know, if you're voting yellow or green or red and blue, there's like a middle-aged, uninspiring white man for you. So whatever it is, there's someone there. But one of the things that happens in election campaigns, and I think one of the reasons we find it to be a kind of, you know, just frustrating kind of period, is because you just get these messages day, day in, day out in, in the news or in debates or in ads on your TV or on Facebook, kind of putting forward these big promises and claims. And this happens across the political spectrum, not picking on anyone in particular. And you, got to, you just know as you're watching it, that there might be some truth in what these people are saying or what they're hoping to do, but on the other, end of, on the other hand as well, they want you to vote for them. And that is, their, that is their goal throughout the whole campaign. It's to make you think that they are good, and so they will word things or bend things or say things to get you on board with them. So you've got to kind of always be teasing apart 
the, the truthfulness of what they're saying from what's just kind of spin to make them look good. And you don't have to look very far to see that politicians will go to pretty much any length to make people like them. You just go to Google Tony Abbott eating an onion or Kevin Rudd playing cricket to see evidence of this. When someone's got an ulterior motive, you've got to question what they're saying. Are they saying what they're saying because they mean it and because they believe it or because it's what you want to hear? And that's why we love when a, you know, when a politician leaves their microphone on and you kind of hear them say something that just they would never say publicly and you say, that's the real you. Now what Paul is saying here in, in, as, he, as he opens this kind of section is, look, am I here to win a popularity contest? Am I just trying to make you like me? Well, no. In verse 10 he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul lays out to them, look, you, you can't both be a servant of Christ, someone who's trying to do what Jesus has had him do, and please people. Because those two things are diametrically opposed. The, the message that Paul lays out as he travels around and as he preaches is not a crowd-pleasing message. Underlying this message of grace, which does sound so good and is such an actually an attractive message, to get to that point, you've got to explain that the message of forgiveness means that we need forgiving. And every single person needs to be forgiven because every single person has a problem of sin. It's not just murderers. It's not just dads who walk out on their families. It's not just narcissist CEOs of companies that are ruining the planet. It's not just the greedy. It's not just the rich. It's not just the drug addict. It's not just the thief. Everyone needs forgiveness. Even the loving mum, the friendly neighbour, the religiously upright, the good child. The door to forgiveness is accepting your own need. You aren't better than anyone. And you can't actually solve your problem yourself. That's, that's not a winning message. That is not a, a, a make people like you message to go and, and, and speak to people. And that's what Paul is saying. It's like, look, I'm not just coming to you with something to make you think that I'm a great teacher or a great preacher. I'm coming to you with a message that is a hard message, but it's one that Jesus has put before me. Because sin is not a popular message. It's a conversation stopper to say that you believe that the only way to have a relationship with God is in believing in the death of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul's got very little to gain from sharing this message. But the reason does it is because he believes it even though it's costly. And so Paul's just firstly saying here, look, this actually adds some credibility to him. That he's willing to stand by a message that's not necessarily popular and it might even compromise people's view of him because he believes it to be true. Because you can be a servant of Jesus or you can be a people pleaser but not both. And that's just worth just kind of pausing and thinking on a little bit if, if you are someone who is a follower of Jesus, that just that Paul is laying out that these two things don't go together. That Jesus is calling us to believe and to live out and even share a message that won't necessarily make people like us. It might even cost us social capital. Because the gospel bumps up against our secular worldview in just so, so many ways. And there'll be times when we have to choose between being a servant of Jesus and following him or pleasing people as Paul does. But right now, he's just saying that to say... Look, I'm not, just, I'm not just here to say what you want to hear. I'm here with a message that I've, been, that I've been given. And so secondly, then he comes to, the second kind of part of that is not only is it not a message designed to make people like it, but it, he's claiming that this, this truth claim, this message, this gospel, doesn't have its origin in people. If you read verse 11 and 12, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, 
that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's point here is that this message he's putting out, that he's asking people to take hold of and believe in, isn't just the result of someone going away and thinking something up. He doesn't just believe it because someone explained it to him. He doesn't believe it because he just went and thought about it himself. There are plenty of, I guess, religions and philosophies of life that are the result of people trying to think through, well, what's this life about? Kind of what is enlightenment? What are we meant to be doing? And they put, they put something forward. But there is many religions in the world, but most religions share one thing in common that just seems to be the mark of kind of how, by default, humans go about thinking about how to make sense of life which is that it's about what you do. Religions, the religions you may know about are, are super, super different to each other in so many ways, but there's this common thread that there is some formula to follow, some, some good deeds that must be done, some, some steps to take to gain righteousness, to gain God's favor, to gain success, whatever it would be. But the gospel's unique. It's not a man-centered message. It's not about what we need to do, but it's a God-centered message. It's about what he has done. And it's received by, by Jesus Christ himself. Now what Paul's doing here is referring just in this one line about receiving it from a revelation from Jesus to his kind of origin story that the people of Galatia would have been familiar with. It's told in another part of the Bible, the book of Acts, that Paul, or Saul as he was known at the time, was a leader in the persecution of Christians. He was an influential Jewish man who would go from house to house, drag off Christian men and women, and put them in jail for believing uh, this worldview that they thought was subversive. And he would even oversee the, murder, the murders of influential Christians. He would stand by as he rallied up a crowd of people to take stones and rocks off the ground and, and literally use those stones, hurling at people to kill them. And whilst on his way to a town called Damascus to arrest Christians and put them in jail... Saul was blinded by a light and Jesus spoke to him in this kind of supernatural, miraculous way and changed him and sent him to actually preach the gospel to the parts of the Roman Empire that, that hadn't yet heard it. And it's a radical conversion. But Paul's point here is simply this, that he didn't just go sit under a tree and reflect and have this kind of change of mind. In fact, he was like the last person that would actually come to this decision in and of himself. That he, he was, in a sense, unconvincible of this message. That he, he hated Christians, he hated Jesus, and in an instant, something changed for him. And he says that the only thing that could do that is Jesus appearing before him and telling him directly, go and preach me to the Gentiles. So Paul's saying, look, this is why it's worth listening to. This isn't just some, something that we've thought up. This isn't just some kind of man-based thing. This is from out, from out there. I think in our, in our postmodern kind of world, we think that you know, the way you find truth is by looking inside. It's saying what, you know, doing some soul-searching or some traveling, whatever it is, and finding the truth somewhere within. We're pretty anti, I think, most of us, the idea that you just believe what your parents believe or what someone tells you to believe. But Paul's saying, look, the answer isn't just to look inward. The answer is that we need something from the outside. We need reality as it really is to somehow break into our lives and show us what this life is all about. And he's saying that's what the, the gospel of grace is. It's not this thing that we've contrived ourselves, but it is God coming into our life and telling us what life is about and how to grab hold of the most important, life-giving, joyful message in the universe. 
a message about who God is and what he has done for us. And so on the back of that, then Paul comes to, I guess, his main reason then why he should be listened to, why, his, why this message he's putting forward is authentic, which is that this message changes lives. It's life-changing. And if the gospel is true, it would change lives. Just this week, I saw a UFO. Um, it was legit an unidentified flying object, um, not necessarily an alien. I was walking home uh, around sunset um, through Ashfield, and in the distance I saw an object in the sky. that I was like, I've never seen that before. I estimated it to be about two kilometres away, maybe half a kilometre in the air, and it was longer than it was kind of round. It was relatively stationary but moving a little bit, and it was kind of like a, a white strip with kind of blue through it. And I thought, that's really weird. So I turned to my wife and said, what's that? She said, I don't know, maybe it's a blimp. And I was like, I didn't look very blimp-like, so I found an app that tracks things in the sky. No blimp was meant to be there. Um, so I said, look, I've got I to gotta go check. I've got I to go. So I hopped in the car. <laughs> and I started driving towards it um, uh, to, to see what it was. And I'll be honest, I thought there was going to be an expert explanation that's non-alien related. I thought maybe it's a drone, but I thought if it's a drone, it's going to be like a massive military-sized one because it looks quite big, so I'd like to see that anyway. Or maybe it's a helicopter. It doesn't look like a helicopter. So I drove towards it, um, and on the way there, the thought did cross my mind, what if it is an alien? Now, I thought, this if because if, if it is, because it's in the movies, they're not expecting it to be an alien, but it's going to be life-changing. I'm going to have to go home and tell Sarah that I saw an alien, and she's not going to believe me. But it's going to change me forever. I will never be able to unsee what I've seen. Um, now, I know you're probably all curious as to what it was. I got to it, and it was like above me. I still couldn't figure it out. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. But then I got home um, the next day. I'd mentioned it to a UFO-loving friend, and he sent me a news article that other people had spotted the same thing, and it had an explanation. It was a kite. Someone was flying a really big kite, really high in the sky with the LED lights on it, and there's something about flying a kite at night that is um, so unwholesome, but it was, an, it was an explanation nonetheless. That was a little joke for the Simpsons fans out there, just a little treat for you. Now, there are some things that if you encounter them, will change you. Um, and that's what I think makes me skeptical about UFO claims, because you go to the, you know, the people that live in the desert of America, and they're just kind of getting on with their weird little lives, like, yeah, I saw a UFO once. I'm like, nah, wouldn't it change things more for you than that? What Paul is saying is that his encounter with Jesus wasn't just this kind of thing that just shifted his trajectory slightly. It wasn't this thing that's like, oh, okay, well, I guess it's true and, you know, I'll just get on with my life. His experience of Jesus changed everything about him. Look at how he describes the change that happened for him. From uh, verse 13. He says, You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And then he talks about his change, and it, and it comes as a shock to those who knew him. No one else can really explain it. In verse 22 it says, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Now, if you can read in the book of Acts about the remainder of Paul's life, 
which is one of living on the road, going from town to town, sometimes getting chased out of it, sometimes getting beaten, preaching to people. It was a life of organizing, I guess, these big fundraising kind of multi-ethnic drives for the, for the poor, for widows, for orphans. It's a story of um, eventually getting imprisoned because he was unwilling to, to denounce his faith and just spend his time writing letters like the one that we're reading. And so Paul's saying, look, what explains this? How is to explain this change from being someone who was going quite well, respected as someone who really kind of had it all figured out, to being willing to be a person who was the object of scorn? From being a person who clearly had a lot of hatred to the point where he was fine with standing there looking at another human being getting killed to becoming a person filled with love. What does this? Paul says it's the gospel of grace that was revealed to him by Jesus himself. That he, he hit in that moment of encountering Jesus the realization that all of his good works, all of his learning and his teaching and the respect that he had was worthless and the only hope he had was understanding that Jesus died in his place. And in response to this, Paul throws himself and everything he has into the service of Jesus. The power and the authenticity of the gospel is shown in the way that it changes people. It's a really compelling argument. I, it, I don't think it's a, com- a complete 100% definitive truth or, or proof that, um, that Christianity is true, but it is certainly compelling. Because Paul is not alone in this. It's not this one-off event in history that Paul has had his life turned around by the gospel. It has happened millions of times. When you experience this grace, it changes you. The gospel isn't just something you kind of weigh up and choose academically. It's something that, that transforms you through experience. It's the realization that you come to that although you are broken and messy and unlovable in your own particular way, that you've been seen by God and you've been loved. It's that although you've accumulated a debt towards God through years of selfishness and inwardness and even hostility towards him, that he has forgiven you that debt. It's the knowledge that although you are a spiritual orphan wandering alone in this big dark world, A loving father who made you has reached out and brought you into the comfort of his arms, his home, and his family. And when you know those things, when you believe those things, when that affects you, it changes you. It changes your priorities. It changes your values. It changes your decisions. Everyone that's encountered the gospel of grace has a before and after story. It might not be like murderer to preacher like it was for Paul, but it might be from from proud to humble, from greedy to generous, from selfish to selfless. Because that is what happens when you encounter grace. We're seeing, as as Christians do around the world, relatively often the song Amazing Grace, which is, you know, it just hasn't really been topped in in hundreds of years as, as a song that captures just the goodness of God, of what it means that. There's just nothing sweeter than knowing that God has sa- that His grace has saved a wretch like me. That we were once lost, but now we're fi- found. We were blind, but now we see. And those are words that, that every Christian is able to sing because it is this common experience. These are words that, if it was written, that Paul would have very happily sung, I'm sure. But they're also the words that were first sung by the, by the author of that song, John Newton. If you, I know many of you are familiar with this story, but some of you might not be. The guy who wrote Amazing Grace was the captain of a slave ship. He'd spent 
multiple voyages, taking things like wheat to Africa, swapping those for human lives, putting them on a ship in horrible conditions across the sea to the West Indies and trading them for money. He's a horrible person, doing one of the, the worst things that humans have come up with in our, in our time. But in the second half of his life, he met Jesus and so obviously quit that, that, that job and that role, became a pastor, and then with William Wilberforce, he, he wrote a book denouncing the slave trade and fought for the rest of his life to abolish it, to abolish the slave trade. Even if that was going to affect the livelihood and his reputation amongst his fellow slave traders. But for him, it was a true reality that amazing grace had set him free, had given him sight. Grace is amazing and it's transformative. So as we just reflect on this, there's just a couple of things I kind of want to leave you with. First, if you're someone here who wouldn't describe yourself as a follower of Jesus, I just to ask you, how does the story that you believe about the world or about yourself, about God and whether he's there or what he's like if he is, how does that story play out in your life? Maybe you've got some religious kind of deeply held beliefs where you feel you've been taught or you, you, you believe that God will accept you if you do X, Y, or Z. This is that, that kind of, see, I just need to be right. I just need to be a good person. If you've kind of grown up with that religion being loaded on you, you, you might know that that's not a particularly transformative teaching. It just kind of lays you up with guilt and pressure and exhaustion. Or maybe you don't believe in a God at all, because I think this is far more likely in Sydney, that the most kind of common thing is to believe just a secular worldview, just to consider what that story does for you. I would argue it's not bringing about huge transformation in your life. This is a major point of difference with the gospel message. John Ortberg, an American author, I think just helpfully sums this up. He says, I've never heard anybody say... One day I realized there was no God, no one behind reality, no life after death. I realized existence is a meaningless accident, begun by chance and destined for oblivion, and it changed my life. I used to be addicted to alcohol, but now the law of natural selection has set me free. I used to be greedy, but now the story of the Big Bang has made me generous. I used to be afraid, but now random chance has made me brave. Let me say, just the fact that the people, when they start following Jesus and their lives change, isn't, isn't a complete proof of the truth of Christianity. I'm not trying to say that it is. There's a bunch of other ways you can explore and think about this question. But what I do want to put forward is the sheer number of lives that have been changed for the better by this message is at least a reason to explore the, claim, the claims of Christianity further. And if you're here, maybe you're already exploring and we just want to say we love having you with us. Um, we don't want to judge you for not being on the same page as us, but we're just glad that you can be part of what we're doing here. And I just want to encourage you, one thing you could do, as we saw in that video, would be to try Alpha. It's just an opportunity just to explore, to, to, to open yourself up to this message that has the potential to change your life. We'd love you to consider doing that. But for those of you who, who do follow Jesus, and would describe yourself as a follower of Jesus at the moment, what does this have to say to us? And I'm trying to be careful as in these first weeks of Galatians not to just kind of come out and say, well, here's five things you need to go and do because the whole point of this is that it's the gospel of grace. It's not about what we do. But maybe at the moment you're struggling to believe. Maybe at the moment you're feeling like following Jesus is more pressure 
than relief, I just want to encourage you to actually pause and to consider the difference that God has made in your life. How has the gospel changed you? Because if you've experienced grace, it will have. If you, if you really reflect, if you're like, no, nah, I don't think I have experienced grace and I haven't changed at all, I would encourage you to do Alpha as well. Even if you've been at City Light for years, you're welcome to come and join us for that. We'd love you to have you have it. But I, I think it's the case for most people in this room who are followers of Jesus, who, who believe this gospel of grace, that your lives have been radically changed. God has been at work in you. Your lives are nothing like what they would be had you not met Jesus. It's changed how you've conducted your relationships. It's changed how you've handled your friendships. It's changed your career choices. It's changed the purchases you've made and when where you lived. It's changed how you view yourself and value yourself. It's changed how you've related to addictions. It's changed how you've loved others and, and perceived others. Your life may be very different. But it's possible to be a Christian for some amount of time and to kind of just forget that, that although God has been doing an amazing work in you, that you kind of think, this is just who I am. So if there's something you want to go away and do in response to kind of looking at God's word today, one challenge would be this. You could go and spend some time just reflecting on what God has done in your life. Maybe even taking a pen and paper and, and writing down what things about you are different that are only the way that they are because of what Jesus has done. Maybe if you became a Christian at a very young age, it just feels so far back and you can't even remember. Maybe to think, what if you had just stayed on the trajectory that you were on, what would your life be like now? And my, uh, my belief is that if you do this, you will see that God has been working. And that is an evidence of the, of the truthfulness of this message that changes. We might just take time to remember what God has done us by his grace and to give thanks and to worship him. I encourage you to take some time to do that this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to just thank you for the gospel of grace and what Paul just does here in, in laying out from his experience the way that he's been changed, the way that he's come to know this truth, um, just the, the encouragement that is for us. And Lord, I just pray for people here who are looking um, for looking for you, looking for answers, maybe haven't, haven't had any sense of tangible experience of your nearness or your closeness or your love that you would be breaking into their life in some way that they might know that you are real, that you are there and that you love them. And Lord, for those of us that you've been at work in for six months or a year or, or five years or ten years, we just pray that we wouldn't lose sight of your grace. We wouldn't slide back into living as though it's all about what we do, but we just know that through no effort of our own, you've changed us, you've taken us on a path to death and put us on a path to life you've taken us from being isolated and alone to being in your family you've taken us from being able to just not see what this life is to be able to see you and to see your face and your goodness and love towards us we pray that we would be a people just struck by the amazing grace that you've shown us and we praise in Jesus name Amen